and welcome to the Cloud Computing Show, episode number 52. We are live at VMworld from the Wynn Las Vegas with an esteemed group of guests. I'd like to introduce everybody. First, we have James Waters, Group Manager of the Cloud Application Platform Cloud Foundry at VMworld, at VMware. James, welcome. Hey, what's up, Gary? Doing well. We also have a special guest today, Derek Collison, who's the CTO and Chief Architect of the Cloud Applications Platform at VMware. Welcome, Derek. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. And, of course, a returning roundtable guest, Adrian Cole, who has a new gig. So tell us about that, uh, Adrian. Sure. I uh, just uh, accepted a position of uh, Chief Evangelist at CloudSoft, um, and they do basically uh, policy-driven apps. So, for example, if you need an application that has to conform to jurisdictional rules, it can work with infrastructure layers such as, you know, um, systems like vCloud or OpenStack or anything else that's driven through the JClouds layer to do that. Right. And Adrian, as some of you might know, is the founder of JClouds. Just remind everybody about some of the, the JClouds, what JClouds is, Adrian. Uh, JClouds is a, a Java and Clojure library for controlling um, cloud computing infrastructure and also accessing blob storage providers. And... Um, you know, so basically what you would do if you had an application that's you know, written in Java, you could embed these components into your app, um, or you could use tools in the ecosystem that use them, such as in Stratus. Great. And I'm Gary Ornstein, the host of the Cloud Computing Show. Today, since we're at VMworld, live in Vegas, and we're lucky enough to have uh, Derek as well as James joining us, this will be a bit of a... VMware-centric show, but that's why we're all here in Vegas anyway, so, so that's a good thing. So today, uh, James and Derek will talk a lot about some VMware-specific things. Uh, you know, often we try to keep the show more cloud computing uh, and vendor neutral, but in this case, given that this is our third inaugural VMware show, I believe, I think so, yes. second or third, um, we'll dig into that. So I will... <laughs> Second? Second, second show. Sorry. Okay, all right. You know, it's it's good to be optimistic. Uh, James, you mentioned uh, just before we started recording, there's been a lot of activity uh, leading up to VMworld in terms of uh, VMware announcements. Of course, we'd have to have a four-hour show to cover all of them. Yeah. But let's cover some of the stuff that uh, that you and, and Derek have been working on. Yeah, sure. So uh, Cloud Foundry um, had a pretty busy two weeks. and uh, What is Cloud Foundry? Derek? Uh, cloud Foundry is, is VMware's contribution to the cloud community around uh, application platform as a service. So everyone talks about infrastructure as a service, and what we believe the, the puck is moving to is the concept of you know, deploying applications as services, not worrying about infrastructure. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you, James. Back to you. So tell us about the new stuff. Yeah, sure. So the last two weeks, um, we've been doing some interesting things with ecosystem partners, and we announced a product called MicroCloud that was pretty exciting. So I'll do, I can tell you a little bit about a couple of the uh, partnership stuff that we've done, and maybe Derek can tell you about MicroCloud. Um, so pretty interesting, we announced a, a collaboration with Ubuntu to be part of their distribution. So uh, it's pretty cool that you can get our, the client to our um, platform as a service, as well as the server-side uh, logic. All download as Ubuntu packages, and the client will be in uh, universe for Ubuntu. So every one of their 12 million or 20 million developers, they claim a couple different numbers, but it's huge will have immediate access to it. And so what does that mean? Is that like uh, when I download the uh, the App Engine plugin from Google and I can build apps on my computer and then test them essentially as equivalent as when they're going to be in the cloud? 
It's, it's similar. Um, essentially, what James is talking about is, is there's two pieces to Cloud Foundry. There's the runtime that actually is running your applications and servicing them up to your users. The other piece is how you actually interoperate with that system itself. And that's an open source HTTP REST based JSON payload API. Um, and currently, we have two incarnations of that. One is VMC, which is a command line client, which is also open source. And that's what James is referencing that's now included as part of the Ubuntu distribution. And we also have a STS integration point for those in terms of Spring and IDEs, um, so to speak. So what, what do you expect are some of the use cases that we're going to see early on of people taking advantage of this availability of the, the microcline, as you talked about, or the microcloud? Oh, yeah, sure. So microcloud is a different thing. Oh, okay. uh, this is, it's similar with Ubuntu, right? Uh, but it's, it's a different thing. So uh, microcloud is a VM download of, uh, of Cloud Foundry with um, some wrapper around it to make sure that you can instantly get it connected through DNS and have your own uh, namespace. Maybe, Derek, you can tell them a bit more about it. Yeah, I mean, Gary, what we're trying to do is we really believe with uh, certain aspects of the system that we've done, very specifically, like open sourcing it, uh, you know, really fostering the ecosystem, that we want this available to everybody and anybody. And so what we had seen was with the open source distribution, a lot of people would try the service, which they didn't have to deal with except for the client, right? They could deploy their app, get something running, and say, wow, it was kind of neat. And their immediate knee-jerk reaction was, ooh, I want to run one of those on-premise. You know, I want to run one of my own. And that was the whole design goal of what we believed would be the ecosystem of Cloud Foundry, that it wasn't about public or private or hybrid, but all of them, you know, all combined. What we found, though, is, is that, you know, distributed systems and Cloud Foundry is a true distributed system, um, and I believe it's one of the simplest, simplest ones out there, are still hard. They're hard to set up. They're hard to manage. And we didn't want people to have that friction point to be able to play with this thing if they wanted to on their MacBook while they were flying to, let's say, Vegas for VMworld. And so the logical answer for that was is we'll actually package the whole thing up. It's the exact same thing as the bits that are running cloudfoundry.com, our big service that you can actually sign up for and use. You can download it, and it's, I think it's an 800 meg VM, fire it up on your laptop. And like I said, James, uh, James was saying we do some tricks with we uh, on-the-fly register dynamic DNS addresses, even if it's a NATed address internally, such that you on your Mac can be in your Chrome or Safari or Firefox browser talking to your VM right on your MacBook, running in a VM under Fusion, let's say, and you have the whole CloudFoundry.com experience, everything, gotcha. all the services and all. So what kind of applications are you guys seeing, uh, and what do you expect to see as some of the highlight sweet spot use cases here? Um, well, I mean, there's two answers to that. One is I can tell you what we're seeing now and what we prep for, and I can tell you the real answer is when we designed the system, we didn't know and we, we don't pretend to know what all the applications are going to be. Sure. And so one of the tenets of the system in terms of multi-framework, multi-language, we really took to heart. And so even on day one, we supported things as diverse as you know Spring with uh, Groovy and Grail support all the way down to Node.js, which at the time was still kind of a newcomer to the market. Um, we've added Scala uh, through our ecosystem now. We can do Python and PHP. Um, and we actually do break down the applications that are actually running on the system, and we're watching those. Um, we were surprised to see a lot of interest in Node, even though we didn't market it a lot. Obviously, we have a lot of interest in Spring because that's a VMware asset that we hold close and near and dear to our heart. Um, we're starting to see some uplift with Scala. Scala is uh, essentially, it's a language, but its, it's runtime component is a JVM, and so since we already support that, that kind of came for free. Um, we did do some framework support there. So uh, we're seeing lots of different apps. And what I think the key takeaway, at least in our perspective, is, is that 
as PaaS, like Cloud Foundry or, or other systems, make this easier to do, you're going to see lots of apps in lots of different languages using the right tool for the right job. Mm -hmm. Same thing with services. Yeah. Right? As there's lots of services available, it's very easy to just bind them into your app. You quickly diverge from the, I'm going to write my app in Java and I'm going to bind it to a relational database. All of a sudden you see, I might take one part of the app and write it in Node and bind to Mongo and use Redis for a key value cache thing. Right. Now VMware historically, and maybe this is my bias, has been a very enterprise-centric company. And so enterprises do a lot of their own internal application development. A lot of the things and the languages you talk about now are much more popular with sort of new, newer web applications, not necessarily outside the enterprise. You know, wh where's the line there? And I also want to get Adrian's point here, because Adrian has a lot of background in enter the enterprise side of Java uh, development and Java middleware. And so maybe, Adrian, you can provide some context with what enterprises have built historically uh, on their internal platforms. And then, Derek, maybe you can tell us sort of where you see the enterprise evolving and where you see some of the, the web companies taking advantage of this. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and in fact, I just had a, a few day um, meeting with uh, the guy who's uh, working on the uh, uh, entitlement reforms that are going through the various states. Uh, so they have to, for example, deal with Obamacare and things like that and, re and either refactor existing systems or more generally lay down new old architecture. <laughs> And so it, what the problem with enterprises is that there tends to be R&D groups that are, that are quite bleeding edge, but a lot of the nuts and bolts are run you know, by several old architecture. Um, so when you talk about something like cloud computing, sometimes you have to you know, leapfrog a couple hurdles. For example, repeatability of your configuration, application lifecycle management. These uh, in configuration management concepts might not even be in place in a way that's outside of, for example, I told their cab. So, so there's, there's a sort of, um, you know, uh, there's, there's a couple challenges getting an enterprise to, to move from, you know, what might be a you know, large body shop install by, you know, one of the big SIs, which may have no configuration management at all, um, getting that, you know, compartmentalized into what these things are actually doing and which pieces can be deployed in, you know, independently. And then, you know, and then it, looking about, you know, if you have this system, this distributed system, um, where do those things fit into things like platform as a service? And I think that's a big challenge for the enterprise because they don't necessarily have the um, skill set in-house. Definitely government doesn't. And so they're looking to SIs actually help out. So I think one of the one so of the System integrators is, to help. Yeah, like your Accenture's or your Deloitte. Right. And so I think there's actually two prongs of getting enterprise adoption. One is the enterprises themselves. The other is the SIs and, and actually right. get them familiarized but, with but that. What are, the, what are some of the main categories of application? I mean, is it just sort of business process management apps? I mean, you have background also in the banking sector. So was it, is it, was it trading applications? Was it you know, internal compliance review? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that I've noticed is that people synonymize cloud with elasticity. So, it, you know, for example, as, as it's being branded in, in enterprise folks, like for example, my, my former colleagues, they're generally talking about uh, grid-based systems uh, or systems that require uh, large, you know, uh, in-memory data grids to handle reference data of some sort or to ha handle like influx of load of, of like automated uh, trading systems and things that are sort of um, by nature elastic. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, remember, all enterprises have massive web op shops. So it's you know, 
one of the things that um, is pretty interesting to think, to think about is that your average enterprise probably has 100 to 1,000 different apps, and probably most of those are, are fairly simple web apps. Gotcha. And, and so there's quite a lot of room to to start without yeah. you know saying I'm going to take the most complicated yeah. you know message oriented beast and, and yeah. So Derek or James, what what are what's your take on on what are the actual applications that people are looking to you know what are they dealing with today? What are they looking to? I to think, move? and I'm going to let James jump in here as well. I think um, you know VMware is is a very very large company, and obviously legacy workloads we kind of have that kind of down to a pat, you know, we right. know how to deal with those. And so if you look specifically at the cloud computing and platform as a service plays, um, we talked about it earlier about trying to move where the puck is going to be, not where yeah. it is now. And so what I really believe is happening at this point in time is probably going to be the largest application rewrite that enterprise IT has ever seen in the history of, at least that, that I've been around of 20 some years. And the reason is, is that IT always kind of held the, 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 the crown. You know, they could say what was going to happen and what wasn't. And now the empowering, um, you know, workforce with their smartphones and smart devices and tablets are really, you know, affecting a sea of change across IT where the apps have to be written almost on day one for mobility first, you know, simple web front end second. Um, and so there's a, a, a huge um, divide between these legacy apps and it, the feeling that I believe is going to happen is, is that the, as long as they have a way to forklift these things and move them around and support them, which again, traditional you know VMware does very, right. very well. I mean, the basic virtualization can take your yep. enterprise app that was running on a bare metal server and put it in a virtual machine, essentially the same way that you always dealt with it, yep. except now you've got that flexibility. But it doesn't change the architectural model of the application. No, and so I guess what I'm saying is, is that then these new applications are kind of free to run and, and kind of mold to what I think is, is happening, which is a very, very fast land grab for this rush into mobile-enabled uh, applications. And so it's kind of interesting because a lot of these technologies that exist today existed before, and we could just never get over the hump to actually have people start utilizing grid computing, utility computing. It's all been kind of the same Do you thing. think just because it was too complex to set up the whole thing on your own and... Now you can just dial it up over the web? or I think there's a little bit of that. I think what's more important is, is that the power now is on the DevOps side and the user side. And so they could say, hey, don't you understand this is a lot easier? And IT would say, we do it this way, we're happy, leave us alone. And they started to try to you know, hold the tide back against, you know, I'm not going to use your you know, whatever laptop you give me. I'm going to run this on my MacBook. I'll put Fusion on it and run Windows if you want me to. Right. And that's actually tidal waved into... Make sure this thing runs on my iPad. I don't care what you're writing, but if it's a new app, it better run here. And what's happening is it's not only users, let's say, that might not wield any power over IT, it's all the executives now, too, are saying, wait a minute, I, just get this thing on my iPhone, okay? And so the, the tides are turning in terms of the power curve, and so IT has to react. Right. And I think some of the answers are in things like platform as a service, cloud computing, right. that are very disruptive, but very, very geared toward you know, run fast, iterate quickly. So, so you know, another thing we talk about in general is the consumerization of IT decisions in uh, in enterprises and how easy it is to use things like Dropbox or, or Box.net or these online file sharing. When that stuff is easier than using your own corporate internet file server, right, gravity moves to ease of use sure. very you quickly. You might stitch it together with something. So a quick story that I think is, is, is germane here was... Uh, Derek and I were at OSCON, and uh, a couple major banking execs were, you know, very interested in the product. And one of them said, "We've had this cloud initiative before, but we didn't have the right interface. We were giving our devs just raw VMs, and they're like, that's a really bad idea.'" 
And so kind of what, what Derek and co have architected is you don't do, ever think about VMs again. And that's obvious to Paz, but it was great to hear them coming to us and saying, this is the consumerization of the interface into our IT environment that we want for our developers. We want them to just push apps. We want them just to attach services. They were very excited about that. And I think that's going to really help drive the agility. Yeah. So do you think, and I, I, I can guess the answer, but do you think that this wave of platform as a service and giving people the choice of language and giving them all these tools essentially at their fingertips is going to now empower corporate IT to, to compete with these other, you know, consumerish online services? Um, yeah, well, let's put it this way. I think they need something like that to be able to even step up to the plate. Mm-hmm. Once you step up to the plate, you still have to know how to hit a ball. And I'm going to leave that, you know, for right. a further discussion. But I think these tools are, are, are absolutely needed in the enterprise to start moving at the speed at which they're going to be needed to. And there's, an, there's another couple of points on this. One is um, probably the most succinct um, requirement that relates to this was uh, um, the last boss I had, Andy Smith and, and Barclays in London. He said that his goal would be to have um, environments when he needs them um, and be able to predict their costs. Um, but but without having to to be dependent on how many you might have, and when he says environments, he's really talking about platforms, a development because, environment. Yeah, right. In an, an environment that has you know, for example, the you know similar products to coherence and, and the web logics and things like that. But basically, the whole stack and everything integrated, because that was the biggest problem in doing like post prod investigations and things like that, or even new product line development, was just the fact that they couldn't get predictable environments. And what does this thing do? It provides you a an interface that's relevant to the whole environment, as opposed to you know a bunch of you know loosely connected VMs. So you're saying the predictability in terms of the cost of the development environment. Well, that too, as well example, as the performance and what it's going to be able to handle. I mean, you have to be able. It has to be. Uh, I mean, the interface helps. So the interface is, is is what defines what you actually get when you say the word environment. Before you'd have to have this you know discussion about what that environment really is. And you know, is it here, here, and here, and here? It might have a different process. If you have something like, you know, for example, a Cloud Foundry with maybe a, you know, a crowbar attached, then you know, you could potentially have a very estimatable process to actually provision environments intact with all the pieces ne- necessary by contract, because you know, you have BMC on one side and you have you know recipes on the other that are that are basically fulfilling that goal of getting predictable environments out. Right, and the higher, I suppose, we can move up the food chain. You know, it's one thing to provision the cost of a virtual machine. It's another to predict the cost of actually getting that to a development environment that supports the languages you want. And, and that, that's what was want. so cool. I thought that they were they got that. They were so excited about that. And they're like, we need to get rid of all of this lower level stuff that we've ever exposed. Yeah. So so is, is infrastructure as a service going to go away? No. No. And, and it, you know, again, this is we're, we're more focused on what we think, where the hockey puck is moving to. But no, infrastructure as a service is not... One of the interesting things, though, that with anything that kind of looks and, and smells like a, a platform is there's multiple lenses that people look through to see uh, the interface, as you were saying, you know, that they're talking about. So developers see something that's very, very simple to develop against and deploy. IT administrators hopefully see something that's, hey, this is just a bunch of VMs, resources, I understand how to do this, great, I'm good. What's really interesting is, is as we move to this mobile, smart device-enabled world, the other big lens that I think is extremely important is that of compliance. And so if we develop a technology that allows compliance to look through a totally different lens that does not perturb the other two lenses, the devs and the IT ops, 
that could be a win for everyone. In other words, I can come in and say, okay, I need to know where this piece of data is going. Who can get access to it? But for me, let's say I'm actually developing the app. Don't don't reach your compliance into my app. All of a sudden, I got to, oh, okay, now I have to deal with all this other stuff. And so if you start thinking about these things as having these multiple lenses that are independent and orthogonal to each other, that's pretty powerful. So are you saying that uh, a well-architected platform as a service will provide visibility to all the distribution points without necessarily having to, to bother the application developer? Is that... I think it's, it's, it's not fair to say that specifically, but what is fair to say is, is that it will give you a lens into those distribution points so that you can control them how you feel is fit. So for example, Cloud Foundry uh, in particular can access services that it actually can't control or do anything with. Yet it still offers a window into, I know that Gary just provisioned you know, something on a MongoDB instance and he's you know, saving data there. Um, we can't tell you what data it is. Sure. But there's at least that lens that allows compliance, which again, I think is a very, very underestimated technology uh, deficit that we need to fix very quickly for this new world. Um, it, it gives you that at least opportunity. Right. Go ahead, Adrian. There's one, one really interesting thing I learned about um, the last few days. Um, so a friend of mine who's the uh, acting CIO of New Mexico was telling me about this reprovisioning re process. So state governments are required to actually change hands of whoever's tending to their environments every eight years. And without any way to describe how the data or schema got in there, how your apps were provisioned or anything else like that, it can be a laborious, if not like year-long process of tax money, you know, being spent to sort of reverse engineer the old process and then, you know, forward engineer the next one. And then that's not necessarily portable again. And so one of the things, it's, it's, a, it's a big step to, to actually bring a lot of the, you know, the larger industry type of apps up there, but when we get them into the platform, one of the things we'll, we'll eventually see is that just the idea that, you know, not just the app, but also the data and the schema and everything else like that, and the compliant, how do you actually comply with things, those processes are, are going to be a big play in reducing the cost, not just enterprise, but also of taxpayers. Everybody's going to be happy about that. <laughs> I would be. So what else do we need to know as we get ready for a few days of the VMworld bonanza that we uh, we haven't discussed that was VMware specific. Uh, so I believe today we're announcing um, a new database management. Um, I did I did see a link to that in a couple of the news stories that are out. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. That's been in under development for a long time. I haven't been able to talk about it. Um, Can you give us a thirty second yeah. high level picture? Yeah, sure. So it it uh, automates a lot of the life cycle of a database. So backup, recovery, restore, provisioning, everything that you go through in a life cycle mm -hmm. um, on top of vSphere. So it's a vSphere specific product. Um, and it starts out with its first database is Postgres. So that's pretty exciting. And uh, it also has a, uh, a optimized version of Postgres that runs specifically well on uh, vSphere. So that's very exciting, just like our optimized uh, Java. Postgres is making a comeback, I think. Is it just me that I think that? Or do you, I mean, I hear more and more about it. I don't know, maybe it had something to do with the Oracle HP wars and you know, folks looking for alternatives. Uh, the folks I talk to say that the, the, you know, working with Postgres is much more similar to working with you know, classic enterprise database stuff than things like I MySQL. Think, Derek, what's your take? Well, I think I think you're right that Oracle opened that door up. But I mean, even before that, technology-wise, you know, people kind of understood the strengths and weaknesses of both MySQL and Postgres. 
and it was a long-standing uh, uh, issue that you know Postgres's performance couldn't match MySQL, yet it had these concepts of you know you can roll back a schema migration, and as people started figuring out that the capex of a choice wasn't the important part, it's the opex of running the service, and you picked you know MySQL and you change your schema every once in a while, and boom, something went really really bad, and you were essentially hosed. And you only get burned once on that. And, and so a lot of the Postgres converts, even before the Oracle uh, issue opened the door of just, I don't want my everything. <clears throat> yeah, was, when Oracle. they got MySQL from the Sun acquisition, right. Right. Um, so, I, and I think what's happening is, is that uh, Postgres now is starting to do some interesting things around uh, clustering. And for the most part, I believe, uh, at least in my opinion, that the issues Postgres has with performance are one, being settled very quickly, but are also a more tractable problem than trying to retrofit MySQL inside the political boundaries of Oracle to do things that it was supposed to do that would, one, make it compete more with Oracle's crown jewels, which wouldn't make sense. So Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. And, and to James' point, though, I think with, with the whole notion of, you know, applications and services, you know, we leave out that concept of data. And the reason we did is we've been thinking very, very hard for the last 18 months on what does this really mean? You know, what does a, a data... Uh, centric or, or data gravity fed cloud mean, you know, where you're actually moving your apps to the data because that's the thing that's sticky. And what would, could we do to provide something both for IS, you know, existing VMware customers, and also, you know, some of the newer ones on the Cloud Foundry platform that really offers something that's pretty compelling. And we kind of started looking about all these databases running around in the wild, and, you know, James has the master database, and I file a help desk ticket, and I want a copy of it, and he says no, and I finally get my read-only copy just because I want to do some business analytics on it. And what uh, you know, Project Aurora is trying to do is really kind of encapsulate a lot of those uh, patterns that we've been seeing and make them just drop-dead simple and compliant, like we were talking about before. So, Neat. Yeah. The tentacles extend. Yeah. yeah. Exciting database automation on vSphere. Cool. Well, let's just uh, chat about some of the general stories that we've seen uh, leading up here. Of course, it's still, I, we're going to see a ton this week, more than we'll ever be able to keep track of. Um, but just this morning, Dell announced their foray into cloud computing, starting with a VMware-based cloud offering, and then talking about adding uh, Microsoft Azure and uh, OpenStack later on. Did, did you guys see that? Any any opinions or take on that? Yeah, I actually share an office with the guy who's been working with Dell over the last six months on that deal, so uh, I'm pretty familiar with it. Yeah, that's exciting. I mean, Dell, you know, De Dell has an incredible ability to standardize technology for mass distribution. That's how I would qualify one of their greatest strengths. D did I miss? Are there any other like you know hardware companies running their own? Right now. Well, Microsoft. I mean, Microsoft is a software company, right. but they're HP has been making noise. They haven't come out of. Yeah, I can't yeah, keep track of the say, myriad of HP cloud announcements. <laughs> they seem to have a different one every. every uh, you should of have Beery Singh on, so he's a nice uh, Silicon Valley local. Have Beery on. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's an interesting thing from Dell. That, that, that I assume they'll start offering that today, if not, you know, near term, and we'll see. Yeah, I, my question is. <clears throat> You know, there are going to be so many choices available to people soon. You know, we went and there was a note last week about AWS turning five, right? And they held the only spot, really, for a number of years. Now there's plenty of options if you need to get anything from just a plain old instance of a server up to value-added things on top of it. But, uh, you know, we're going to see another wave. I mean, first there was the wave of all these different 
cloud operating systems. We were nine or ten a while back. Uh, now there's a wave of all these different providers. You put the matrix of providers and cloud operating systems. How does somebody who wants to do this figure out what they're supposed to do? I'll just say one thing really quickly is that monoculture didn't win, though. Um, the idea that you could have essentially one cloud AWS that would just be the default for everybody. Yeah, and that, I think that's a good thing. That, that, that didn't happen. And it, to all their credit, all their success, I wish Jeff Barr very big congrats on that day, right? Uh, and I haven't always been a big AWS fan. Um, but I think the other thing, though, is, is that... Cloud Foundry is cloud agnostic, right? Yeah, I mean, so I, I, that, one of anywhere. the coolest things we didn't mention, Gary, was uh, our, our partner, AppFog, uh, came out with Cloud Foundry on AWS. So actually, we, we do have a AWS-specific um, option now for folks. But the, you know, it, just like in that case, that's one possible thing you can do. Monoculture didn't win. That's not going to be the only way of consuming Cloud Foundry. There's going to be a lot of other ways. And I think the idea that enterprise IT would just default to one provider, kind of like in, in, in Salesforce got the CRM market, right? Mm -hmm. um, infrastructure and platform services are just too important to have a monoculture around them. And I think that's where you see the investment. Yeah, and, and, and I totally agree with what James is saying. A counterpoint, though, that's kind of interesting that we've seen, especially with our friends over at AppFog, is, is that you were saying we have so many choices. How are we going to, you know, we got Dell doing this. You know, we don't know necessarily what IBM or HP are doing. We've got Amazon. Yeah, we got Terramark and Savas and Verizon and, you know, I mean, just on and right. on and on. And, and we know there's legacy workloads. And so we're not going to talk necessarily about that right now. But for some of these new apps, I can tell you, I've seen people's faces absolutely light up. And it's to Adrian's point that it is a familiar, simple, singular interface that they deal with. Of They deploy an app to their micro cloud foundry, to cloudfoundry.com, which is all vSphere based. And then they can go right over to, you know, an Amazon instance, let's say AppFog, and deploy it right there. And everything feels exactly the same. And they look and say, wow, that's pretty amazing. So if we can offer them choice where they need to get something that's familiar, and like Adrian was talking about, a familiar interface that's consistent, that's pretty powerful. And we've seen a lot of people really react positively to that. And so when James talks about us trying to foster that ecosystem, you know, we have a very specific purpose of why we're trying to do that. Yeah, and I'd say to the, my friends in the vCloud world, um, who Adrian and I know well and we used to work with them, um, they have a similar thesis, which is that, yes, there's going to be a lot of vCloud providers, but there's one vCloud API um, that's going to at least be very similar between the installations of this. So you get choice in terms of who can deliver that um, service, but you have some standards that you can work around. Yeah, and that announcement just came out this morning. And so there's actually a, a website, I think it's vcloud.vmware.com, where you can go and find... You know, for the single interface, vCloud interface, all these providers that can actually uh, interoperate with. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Neat. Um, I want to change topics a little bit and talk about networking, which I've mentioned before, it's near and dear to my heart. Um, just this past week, uh, one of the newer companies on the block, Embrain, that's doing some neat uh, software-based uh, virtual networking stuff, got another round of funding. In scanning the headlines this morning, I saw networking news coming from VMware, coming from Cisco, coming from Juno. I mean, the whole bonanza. It does seem like, you know, I kept saying, like, where's the next wave of networking companies? And when you look at the hardware side, it's really slim. I mean, the only company that I know of, I'm sure there's others, that's new on the block in recent years is Arista. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, it's all software. Some of them 100% open flow, some of them partially open flow, but it does seem like we're now at this cusp of a whole new set of networking services that are software enabled and are going to reside inside a virtual machine 
whether that be a VMware virtual machine or something else. What's, what's your guys' take on this networking uh, bonanza that we see? I mean, I think it, it makes, first off, it, it makes a lot of sense because right now one of the things that are differentiators, and you see it as you, as you start to try to roll out complex infrastructure, is that these, these networks aren't always, you know, flat is not always the answer. From a consumer perspective, you want to make that seem flat as much as possible because it's very easy to deal with from that perspective. But when you talk about, you know, where am I going to run my backups over? And when you start, like, actually having your apps and running and things like that, there, there's the fact that you have different networks and different options for stitching the networks together and routing them, I think, is, is, is the same. And I, I would actually lump this into the general category of appliances going into VMs, like we've been talking about for years, but actually happening now. Um, so, for example, you know, a lot of the storage providers are now having virtualized, you know, um, you know, VMs that you can de deploy anywhere. That would replace what would before be, um, you know, a hardware appliance. Right. And and in another way, what it helps, especially if you consider the perspective as a platform enabler or platform provider, is it gives you options. So, for example, if if you're familiar with a specific vendor's interface, you could use the VM, which might have half or whatever the capacity of their hardware appliance and make the case. Um, so you, uh, at the platform level, there's no you know, requirement that there's you know, some VM underneath it. It could be bare metal, it could be VMs, who knows. Um, but I think that the fact that the network side, which um, it, it's really, when, when we talk about DevOps, so like some people say, well, it's really SecNet DevPol Ops, um, that the fact that the, the network side of things are actually starting to progress with OpenFlow and with some of the other products like you, you're probably seeing, just shows a, a very healthy convergence uh, you know, towards the same goal, which is basically to make infrastructure not just elastic, but also um, you know, consumer uh, perspective, even from the provider side. So like I, I, as a provider, I want choice, just like my consumers have choice. Yeah, I think you know, we've seen such a huge amount of pressure being put on different components of, of the raw Hardware, the resource pools, with virtualization and, and you know the concept of elasticity, like Adrian was talking about, and network and storage, obviously, are the two poster children that were at the time lagging behind. Um, now, storage, as you point out, uh, and you're probably very well familiar with, has more on the hardware side in terms of the innovation. You know, flash memory, the SSDs. Um, but what we're seeing now with networking on the software side, I think, is still is a similar type of thing, which is and James has heard me talk about this a lot, is I really don't think it's the best performance that wins. It's the most predictable performance in an unpredictable world. And so there has to be a lot of, of technology thrust into these network overlays that are being set up and, and provisioned on the fly for security compliance reasons or whatever to also you know, provide SLAs that you know, run all the way to the back end storage endpoints, which again, you're familiar with, Gary, that also will provide the SLAs. And now all of a sudden we can start building these dynamic systems that can put themselves together on the fly, but they can form contracts very quickly with the networking topology and the storage systems to say, okay, can I have an SLA that gives me this many IAPs per second on my remote network storage? You know, right. Things like that. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it is whether it's a networking switch that previously housed a lot of functionality in its silicon or a storage array that housed capacity and functionality in its hardware and software, I see more and more people starting the architecture if they're doing something themselves as, I want to pick a hypervisor and I want to fold services inside of that. 
and I don't want to think about this multi-tiered complex. I mean, it's it's sort of like there's only so much capacity that uh, you know you can deal with mentally. I mean, it's not that the that having all those tiers doesn't work functionally, but when you want to manage the stuff and you, if you have to make changes, you can't drag and drop a pizza box, right? So I mean, we're, we've come into a new interface for the data center, which is you're dragging and dropping VMs into groups and organizations. And it's really hard if you have to go hardwire a pizza box up to, to play in that world. And so, at the you know, I know the network guys at VMware, I won't speak for them, right? But, you know, they're really interested in optimizing for an ecosystem where people can plug their software and their portable software into the new networking stack, much less so than, hey, you got to hardwire up my XYZ and, you know, go console into it. And even to up-level it from there, you were saying, oh, I, you know, I don't want to have to worry about that, just give me a hypervisor. I would actually say no. You know, I'd say, you know, I have my application. It needs to be able to scale out so I can, you know, support a 1,000 users, each doing, you know, 10 operations a second. Can I have that? And ask that of your services. And, and almost in that plane of a language. Now, we're not there yet, and I'm right. not saying we're going to get there, you know, in the next 12 months or so, but that's the goal. So, you know, it keeps uplifting. It keeps going up the stack where it says, here's the kind of performance, you know, predictability I need from my application service, can you provide it? And the systems underneath have to, and those are the ones that are going to win. And so you see this massive churn in technology around the networks and the, and the storage. And, and Riverbed, who is not quite a pure network, I mean, they're a networking player, but not in the, in the switch context you brought up. Um, you know, they bought Zeus, which is a pure software player um, in the load balancing world. And uh, you saw F5 come out with its virtual appliance this last year um, yep. to add to this. And they're doing uh, client-side virtual uh, connections, you know, software-enabled clients. Yeah, I mean, so there's just all kind of dominoes falling in this space, even from people who have pretty strong hardware businesses. One thing that's really helpful about, you know, cloud offerings now having stronger networks underneath is, for example, the cluster compute instances in Amazon, um, that actually enables a story that, that can't happen earlier. For example, how do you push a petabyte you know, from, from one side of the network to the other if, if you're on these really flaky, normal Amazon networks? And as people see that you, know, you can get three or 400 megabytes per second across these links, they can say, okay, well now I could actually move you know, a genome of size one PV, I can do it, and it's going to. And, it, and now this workload is possible, and I think that, in to a certain degree, we don't see a lot of customization, which is quite normal in Amazon. But uh, when uh, JCloud started supporting the uh, greenhouse data vCloud recently, you know, one of their things was is that well, we have three three service tiers, and we have SSD, and on this one we have all this on this one. And so, for example, you could actually, um, you know, add direct benefit. The challenge is, is actually relating these terms to something that a developer of the app is actually going to care about. So, for example, um, how do you design an interface that says, okay, I, I would like to be able to move a petabyte within a few minutes, you know, that sort of thing, as opposed to what's this really cool model number on this, this specific unit, which is probably, you know, very cool, cool to the other side. And I think that's that's probably a new challenge for us is, is to actually you know get to that level on, on the data pipes. Yeah, the data pipes having full backplane bandwidth is, is hard. I mean, that was something that uh, when I was at Google, um, they were struggling with. So they originally had to step down on the switch uplinks to the racks. They would actually step down and you could not run full backplane. So if Adrian and I were both trying to move our petabyte genome, someone was going to not win or <laughs> we're both going to not win, so to speak. And so... I think there's a lot of stuff in the, the software side, but the expense right now of running a, a network that actually can run at full bandwidth 
uh, is still very, very prohibitive, in my opinion, outside of small installations. So I do believe there's going to be something going on there. And Google's version was that they designed their own system. They built it on their own uh, to do that. But they felt that it absolutely was a necessity in terms of massive scale-out uh, because they did have the concept of, hey, James and I need to be kind of in the same rack. And uh, the, the higher-ups at Google eventually said, no, we can't do that anymore. And so to do that, they actually had to have full you know, backplane bandwidth across all network devices. Which is why the cluster computer you're talking about from Amazon, it has a max of like 30. And it's, it's basically a, a 10 yeah. gig switch, however many units can fit in that. That's the biggest cluster you can have. And also, we, we measured the, the throughput. And we, we may have a you know some sort of weird OS thing going on. But what we noticed was that only over the first like 10 or 20 gigs will we get that 350 or so and then somehow it starts averaging down to about you know EBS speeds you know which is kind of weird and we didn't actually research enough into it to figure out where that bottleneck came from but the other point is is that um, you know are you getting this bandwidth because they're advertising it or is it actually SLA bound you know, so you know so what if they say this happens to be on a 10 gig switch or whatever if the SLA doesn't say that they have to give you that much throughput, it doesn't matter. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that we, that Amazon has been famous for is, is like people's expectations need to sort of, you know, roll with the punches a bit. And I think that's that's going to be one of those challenges to like interweave those SLAs about you know data pipes. And well, those with everything most else. of those switches I'm pretty sure are oversubscribed. So in other words, if you've got, you know, let's say 41 gig connections, you don't have 40 gig you know backplane per se, or, or 10 10 gigs, you don't have you know that type of stuff so yeah and then that's kind of like where the rubber hits the road and all this virtual networking uh, you know because topology matters so if you start building this giant virtual network but any two given points don't actually have full connectivity to each other right um, that's kind of the, the magic point cool well we have got to get ourselves to the activity so we're gonna wrap it up for now <laughs> and uh, we'll end with a quick round of cloud tips where we provide uh, recommendations for products services companies not our own that might be interesting to the users I'll go first one company that launched recently in the spirit of this folding things together into fewer tiers is a uh, storage centric solution from a com company called uh, Nutanix and uh, they, I believe they're here at VMworld uh, their whole pitch is, you know, you don't need a storage area network anymore. You can collapse that and have a distributed but shared resource that essentially eliminates the need to have a big uh, externally connected uh, storage area network. So that's my tip for this week. And who wants to go next? I'll go. Uh, my tip is AppFog, AppFog.com. I just stole Derek's tip. <laughs> um, our good buddy Lucas Carlson. Uh, now building a Cloud Foundry-based and compatible uh, service. Pretty exciting. Um, check it out. He's, he's inviting beta users right now, so it's a good time to go out and uh, say hello. Adrian? Um, I've mentioned Crowbar, um, in oh, yeah. case you haven't heard of it. Uh, that's this, you know, it originally um, spun up by Dell, but if you look at, like, the collaborators on the GitHub site, it's got a pretty diverse set and, and growing in diversity. Um, but basically what Crowbar does, if you're familiar with um, the configuration management tool Chef, sort of like bolts around it and allows you to get you know, below and above you know, the config management level. So you can do things like Pixie Boot Machines and you know, set up DNS and, and even set up things like you know, Cloud Foundry. But, it, it, but it's, it's, it, it's quite an interesting tool and I'm just starting to get, you know, get into it to, to sort of see where it starts and stops. But 
but it seems like it was the missing piece of, of that ecosystem. This is going to get you to your goal of moving a data center with a single click? <laughs> sure. I mean, you've still got to get the machines, but those don't go away. You know, at some point yeah. in time, it does have to hit the metal. And one of the good things about this is it does have you know, metal provisioning in the system. Okay. Before cool. was loosely uh, integrated. So cool, Derek. After James stole your tip, do you have another one for us? Um, I don't necessarily have a specific vendor per se, but in terms of some of the new applications we've been talking uh, about, um, if you haven't already, take a look at Node. Uh, it's out of uh, Joint uh, by my uh, buddy Ryan Dahl. Uh, it's a pretty uh, fascinating framework. Uh, I would imagine if we have not already gotten to the point, we will quickly get to the point where there will be more JavaScript developers than anyone else. Uh, and Node takes a pretty uh, interesting uh, tact at developing apps that are event-driven and can scale very well, which is kind of interesting when you start thinking about not worrying about how much it costs you to make the light bulb, but how much it costs you to run the light bulb. So Yeah. They just had a big uh, Node confab, the Node knockout, node knockout session, yep. so I saw a lot of tweets and, and things coming out of there, which is, was pretty It's pretty still cool. early days, but it's and I don't know where it will actually end up, but it's amazing, again, as we talked about with the mobile apps, we're also seeing a plethora of frameworks and languages that we've never seen, you know, in, in history in terms of just new stuff coming out all the time. So yeah, no, that's I, my tip. That, that's a great tip. I, I haven't seen something that has gathered so much steam so quickly in the developer community in a while. Really, really viral. Yeah. Neat. Well, let's do a quick wrap up with Twitter addresses or web addresses that we'd like to share with the audience. James, we'll start with you. At Waters James. Uh, at Derek Collison. At Jay Klotz. Easy, and uh, for me, at Gary Orenstein. I want to thank everyone for listening to the show. You can visit us at thecloudcomputingshow.com or email us at thecloudcomputingshow at gmail.com. We are looking forward to uh, getting a roster of guests for this fall. There will be a lot of activity, so if you have some suggestions, please send them in. We also have a show Twitter handle. We don't tweet a lot there, but we do release new shows and, uh, and congratulate alumni from prior shows on funding or or exit activity. So that's just Cloud Show for the Cloud Computing Show Twitter handle. And of course, you can subscribe on iTunes. Just do a quick search for The Cloud Computing Show or click through the link on the top right of our homepage. Uh, that'll take you directly to iTunes. Thanks, Adrian, Derek, James. This was a blast. Thanks, Enjoy Derek. the show. Thanks for our listeners. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.